Welcome to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. I'm feeling much better. Thank God. Let's pick up where we left off. We're at the book of Leviticus. We're finally made it. We've finally made it to the last chapter in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament. So as always, there won't be any red letter quotes from Jesus here. Although, to clarify why we say that, we're going to go over a few things with this last chapter that I've mentioned again and again as we began the readings of each of these chapters, um, but didn't necessarily reflect on them from what Jesus does say. So without further ado, let's begin Leviticus chapter 27, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so let's stop right there and let's clarify. So that's an instance again, just like many of the chapters in Leviticus that makes it seem like the Lord is speaking directly to Moses. But um, like I've said again and again, let's look at other places in the Bible that contradict that or seem to contradict that. Starting with John chapter 1. That's the fourth book in the New Testament of the Gospels where you will see the red letters. In other words, quotes of what Jesus did have to say. And so one of the things Jesus had to say is John chapter 1 verse 18. This is Jesus saying now, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So like I always say, if you're a Christian, then you have to choose. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe what some other part of the Bible says? What what your own heart may say or what some preacher told you? Or are you going to believe what Jesus says? It's your choice. But we read it right there. Jesus is saying clearly at any time. Um, but let's look on further for other examples. If you, you turn further into the book of John, chapter 5, uh, verse 37... Uh, Jesus again speaking says and the father himself who sent me has testified of me you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form so again Jesus direct is telling us directly at any time people have not seen uh, God or heard his voice God the father that is so again if you're believing that Moses is interacting with the Lord Almighty then that contradicts what Jesus says. And if you're a Christian, we're supposed to lean into what Jesus says above all. The, I mean, Christianity is named for him, the role he played, the title he earned as Christ, as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. Uh, but there's more. Um, there's other instances where Jesus makes it clear that everything in the Old Testament is not, and, any, and throughout the Bible, in fact, is not necessarily from God. People believe everything in the Bible is inspired by God. That may be the case, but don't confuse that with being from God. Don't confuse anything else in the Bible with what the gospel is, with what God, with what, excuse me, with what Jesus said, or what God would have us to know from what Jesus says. Because remember, Jesus just told us God sent him, the Father sent him, and it's to give us that message more um, evidence of that if you turn a couple of books back from the book of John to the first book in the New Testament, the uh, first gospel in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus is letting us know some things were said, like in the Old Testament, but then Jesus lets us know, but I say to you, so that lets us know, uh, yeah, that's out there. It has been said. I didn't mean it was. It, that doesn't mean it was said by God. It just means that it has been said. Meaning they've passed it down as what people should be following. But Jesus follows that up in verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So he didn't say he didn't say um, divorce for any reason. It, any reason period or for any reason except adultery he said sexual immorality that's not the same thing as adultery like i went over before sexual immorality doesn't even necessarily mean cheating on your spouse because some marriages are open agreed to by both parties that you can see other people so it's not cheating they've agreed to it within the contract of their marriage that they can see other people and that's their business that's why it's not for anyone else to judge what people do in the contract of their marriage if they agree to that and sexual immorality also like i've said can take another form in the form of think of uh, spousal abuse domestic violence 
And that's not just men who abuse women, because sometimes it's not as often. But sometimes women also abuse men. And in more ways than just domestic violence, in domestic sexual violence. If you think about the fact that, generally speaking, a man is more powerful than a woman. So if you're in a marriage and you're beating your wife to make her do whatever it is you think she should be doing or doing what she did, you feel she should not have done, that's sexually immoral. You're using the prowess of your sex, your gender in that sense, the gender, the sex related to your gender, um, over the weaker uh, or less powerful um, prowess of your spouse. That's sexual immorality. Also, if you're using your sex in a, your sexual prowess in bed over your spouse, that's also sexual immorality. So if you're holding out on your spouse when that's not what you agreed to when you got married, that's immoral. You made a contract with that person voluntarily, generally speaking, although we know slavery does still exist and even in America and throughout the world where that's not the case, where you don't get a choice in it. But generally speaking, if you have the choice to get married, that's by your choice. So no one's forced you into that. So if you make that contract, whatever the terms of those contracts are, that's what you bound yourself to. So then if you break that contract, that's sexual immorality. So sexual immorality goes way beyond just adultery, way beyond just cheating on your spouse. It could include a lot of other things. And I think that's the reason Jesus specifically says sexual immorality instead of adultery in that verse. But there's one more instance that I was going to point out to you. If you look back into the New Testament, the third book in the Gospels, the third book in the New Testament, the book of Luke, and turn to chapter 4, verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Jesus is saying it has been said. He didn't say, and God said, or the Lord told you that. He said it has been said, meaning he knows it's out there just like they do, that that teaching, that that dogma is out there and that people believe that and have passed it on as what they live by and believe. That doesn't mean it's from God. That just means it has been said, just like Jesus said. So again, you have to choose if you're a Christian, whose words, whose gospel, whose belief are you going to embrace? It's a choice. And one last thing um, that Jesus makes it clear that there's things out there in the Bible, in religion um, that are out there, but they're not necessarily from God at all. Even if they're in the Bible, even if they're attributed to Moses, for instance, like those other sayings we just went over. One more example is the book of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and Jesus speaking again, chapter 7, verse 22. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus makes it really perfectly crystal clear there that some of the teachings in the Old Testament attributed to Moses are not from Moses at all. They still get, are under the label of Moses' teaching or one of the five books or one of the books of Moses, but they're not something Moses wrote at all. He makes it clear who did. The fathers, meaning the forefathers in that religion, came up with things for people to follow, dogma, basically, to control the society and what people took as their uh, walking orders, basically, of how they should be behaving. Still doesn't make it from God, definitely doesn't make it Christian, and it's absolutely not something Jesus said. So if you're a thumper, trying to live by Genesis, everything from Genesis to Revelation, and juggling it, trying to make it all make sense, and not contradict yourself, it's next to impossible because it does contradict itself. And Jesus is even letting us know instances where it does contradict itself and that some of it's not from God. Some of it isn't even from Moses and a lot of it definitely isn't from Jesus. So I said all that because many of the chapters in Leviticus specifically start out that with that the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses and has the tagline, I'm the Lord, when it gives out some kind of some seemingly crazy edicts like slavery and making slavery okay even though people were just delivered from slavery then in the, a couple of chapters ago we read how you can value people and and evaluate how much they're worth as slaves and how to enslave them and pass them down to your children for generations and how they're never free seemingly madness stuff that why would god in the world why in the world would god almighty even ever say such things 
Well, now we know because God doesn't say all the things that are in the Bible. God definitely didn't say all the things attributed to Moses. And just one last side note on that. You know that the five books of Moses, the first five books in the Old Testament, as they're called, the books of Moses, are not all Moses's words anyway, because Moses dies at the end of one of the books. And yet there's some more books after that attributed to Moses. So how is he writing books still or even coming up with doctrine still and he's already dead it doesn't even make sense except that like i said people tack their own things onto it just like the ten commandments were the only things moses came down the mountain if you believe the narrative those were the only things moses came down the mountain with after he met with quote unquote the lord ten commandments and yet we've read chapter after chapter after chapter of dogma statutes and ordinances and this that and the other that people are supposed to be following dietary restrictions that have changed again and again and again from genesis to this book and we're only in the third book of the bible and i'm pretty sure there's more uh, dietary restrictions among other things that are going to keep coming and one last example is the death penalty most everyone knows thou shalt not kill is one of the ten commandments and yet we've read again and again and again about orders to put out hits on people to stone people to death for instance or and and we've read where god if believing it's god struck down someone who was two people who were trying to make an offering struck them down instantly so why in the world would the same god who has that kind of power then turn around and write up statutes come up stat come up with statutes for people to follow for them to have the authority for people to have the authority to take the lives of people who he's given life to it just doesn't make sense unless you consider all of what we just spoke about so let's move on now. Um, verse two, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man consecrates by a vow a certain, a certain person, let's say that again, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man consecrates by a vow, certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, there you go again. So you see people are being valued, uh, put a price on people enslaved. They're talking about slaves. Not servants, because servants receive paychecks or, you know, salaries. They get um, paid for their service. They're talking about evaluating the price of a, a slave, of a person. Does that really sound like God to you? Um, so, but here it's saying, we're going to just say it's the Lord because that's how it's written. And we've gone over again and again how the word Lord can be translated or traced back to uh, quite a few different words that people are calling Lord. And with these words, it hardly seems that these could possibly be from God Almighty. But it's uh, it's what it says, so that's how we're reading it. Uh, verse 3, if your evaluation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your evaluation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, that makes it pretty clear. It's talking about slavery. It's talking about how much somebody is worth to purchase them. Does that really sound like something God would say? The same God that just performed signs and wonders and miracles like parting the Red Sea to rescue people from slavery, to only then turn around and tell people, oh, that's what this person is worth. That's what this person is worth. This is how much you can pay for that. But does that really sound like God? Verse four, if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. So now not only are you to believe if, if you believe in the narrative here, God values people, men, as more valuable than women, even though it's women who can actually, females who can reproduce and produce another life. So, I mean, that alone seems like it would be worth more. Since for the price of that one person, you could have countless other offspring from that one person. Whereas with a the male, they may be able to sire other, uh, you know, um, children, but you're still going to need a female to be able to do it. And at a certain point, the quality of his sperm, just like the quality of her eggs, diminishes. Um, so if you want to believe that's God valuing men more than women, believe that if you want to. I don't believe that that's God doing this at all. Um, but you can understand how people will use that and have used it historically to uh, squash slave rebellions by teaching them this is what God has for you, that you're worth less than this person, that you're uh, that person's worth more than you. And it lives on in the way the pay disparities even now between men and women, between males and females, where women in America generally make about 75 cents on a dollar for what men make. So that means if a man's making $10 an hour, a woman will get $7.50 an hour. Does that sound fair to you? Does that sound like God to you? 
It doesn't sound like God to me. Um, verse five, and it, if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for males should be 20 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. So the younger are worth even less than the older, even though when it comes to hard labor, you're probably going to get more hard labor out of the youth than you would the old elder. So again, does that really sound like God to you? Putting a price on people's heads, even though they were just delivered from slavery themselves? It sounds to me like it's just religious order being set up. It sounds to me like what Jesus says, making my father's house a marketplace, turning religion into a business in a way of collecting money uh, from people rather than leading people to light and salvation. Let's keep reading verse six. And it if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male should be five shekels of silver. And for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. So even prices on the children, a uh, price for purchasing kids. Does that really sound like God? Verse seven. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. So so far, we've established that the Lord here, that the, if you're going to believe it's the Lord, not only believes in slavery, buying and selling people, also believes in um, paid uh, discrimination based on male and female, um, misogyny in other words, but now also believes in ageism, where if you make it past 60 years old, you're still worth less. Does that really sound like God Almighty to you? Verse 8, but if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. So it's talking about if you if you're reading along with me, and um, I'm using the blueletterbible.org website, but if you have your own red letter version of the New King King James Bible, excuse me, red letter version of the New King James Version Bible. You can see the header in most in the ones I've seen where it's talking about redeeming people, meaning paying the cost to set people free. So if if somebody is a slave and they want to get free, that's what it's describing, how much you're going to have to pay to get your freedom. Um, and even down to the children, how much the children are worth to uh, to pay for their freedom if they've been dedicated to uh, the religion. Say like if you have a child and you sell your child to the religion. If you want your child back, say you were doing better and you don't and you don't need the money now, so you want to buy your baby back or buy your own freedom back, then that's what we're talking about. Your the price to redeem yourself from the slavery you were sold into or sold yourself into. Does that really sound like God? Verse nine, if it is an animal that men buy, may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. So now you know it's talking about people as property because they're now we've moved on to the animals that can be dedicated to the religion, the religious leaders. So it seems to me clear evidence that much of this is about enriching the religion. They've created the laws. They are the law enforcement. So that if you break the laws, they you have to break them off with money or animals or people um, as property. And like we've read in last in a couple of chapters ago, uh, once you're a slave, uh, if you're a certain person, if you're a slave, you're a slave for the rest of your life. Passed down like property from generation to generation, even to the children of the priests who you've been given to, sold to. Does that really sound like God? Um, but it's saying the animals are considered holy when they're dedicated or given up that way to the religion um, as a dedication to God. Verse 10, he shall not substitute it or exchange it good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. So it's saying if someone, like, say you have a cow and you give the cow up to the religion. If you want to swap it out with another cow, you can't do it. It's say like that cow is sickly and you have a healthy one or you gave them a healthy one and now you have a sick one and you want the healthy one back. Uh, you can't do it. And if you do do it, both are considered holy. And I would think that that means both are going to be the property of the religion. 
But let's keep reading and see. Verse 11, if it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. So that's interesting. They're allowed to make unclean animal sacrifices, sort of like pork. You're allowed now to make pig sacrifices to a religion when it's considered uh, unclean and defiled to even touch the pigs. Um, that lets you know the the priests, just like Jesus says in the New Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, they create burdens hard for people to bear, but they won't touch the burdens with one of their fingers. <clears throat> excuse me. And just like Jesus points to the um, David, the King David in the Old Testament situation where the peace, the priests profane the Sabbath and are blameless. So it's letting us know it's just like law enforcement in modern times where their laws set up, but they're not for them. It's for you. Um, the rules and stuff are for you. They're not for the people in power. They're just for you. And the people in power get exemption from the rules. You see that even in as an example, where if you're wealthy, you can get away with murder or you can get away with child molestation. You can get away with and I guess it's getting away with, you can get away with dying in a hotel room in Orlando, Florida, being a celebrity and having a publicly funded, um, um, what's it called when you die and they examine the body? Um, uh, I forget the word. It's slipping my mind. But the public funds it. And then if you're rich, you can get the results of the, what's it called? The examination, the um, autopsy. It's publicly funded autopsy to see what killed you, what was the cause of your death. And yet, if you're if you don't have money or um, or status, then it's public record and anyone can access it and see what killed you because it's publicly funded. The autopsy is paid for by the public citizenry. Yet, if you're wealthy and like we recently saw, you die in mysterious circumstances in a hotel room in Orlando. Um, and I'm sure throughout the country, then if you have enough money or status, you can get the results of your autopsy sealed. Now think about other celebrities who aren't white, like the one who died recently in the hotel room. Think Michael Jackson. Think Whitney Houston. Um, when they passed away, there were pictures floating around of, I, I think there were even pictures of floating around of Michael Jackson without his nose attached and without without his wig on, without his hairpiece on. And with Whitney Houston, graphic images of what happened to them because they have status, they had money, they uh, but what they didn't have was the complexion for protection, like the most recent um, comedian, actor, who passed away uh, under, like I said, mysterious circumstances in a hotel room alone in Orlando, um, dies and the whole thing gets covered up and the media sweeps on. And not only that, if you notice... If you notice when people pass away and you're a certain color, it's instantaneous, almost instantaneous, instantaneous where um, they uh, put out the cause of your death and the photos and the information about it. And then even if they don't, it's weeks before there's a toxicology report to see what actually killed you in the case of them or, you know, what was the cause of your death in the case of the recent uh, then the recent case of the comedian that uh, was found dead in his hotel room. The actor, comedian, the white actor, comedian, and I think he's Jewish. Um, the very next, almost instantaneous, I mean, like the very next day, or the, as soon as it was reported, uh, the police and the media were saying uh, there were no drugs involved. There was no, um, that was not the cause of death. How do they know that so quickly? And toxicology reports take weeks. So how, because they, they run a battery of different tests, not only on your body, but on your blood fluids and all of that stuff and investigate the circumstances yet. If you have the complexion for protection, you can get the autopsy record sealed and you can get the media and the government the, the both those forces to come out immediately and make your um cause of death uh immediately not related to anything drug related even if you have the wherewithal to be entire if, to be fully involved in drug related things but again when you have the right complexion in this country and probably throughout the world you can get all kinds of mountains moved in your favor even in your when you're dead the double standard the bias uh continues it's really sick um, verse 11, oh, so um, that was about the unclean animals. So clearly having pigs around is not an offense 
if they're dedicated to, to the, the religious people, the religious leaders, so that they can be sustained by it and profit from it. It just can't be offered as a uh, burnt sacrifice. It, it You can't barbecue that to the Lord, um, but you probably can go ahead and eat it. Verse 12, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad as you, the priest value it, so it shall be. So the priest is the one that gets to set the price, even for the unclean animals that we read earlier, you're not even supposed to touch or even be uh, near, you definitely not eat. And yet you see here where it's one more rule set up for the people, uh, but the priests are allowed to profit off those same unclean animals. And the unclean animals goes way beyond just pigs, um, lobster, crab, um, shellfish. You're not supposed to eat any of that stuff. And yet, um, it seems the priests can profit from those things if they've been dedicated uh, by the congregation. Verse 13, but if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one fifth to your valuation. So then if, say, someone does fall into poverty or hard times and they sell off their prized cow, if at some point they um, um, their luck changes, their circumstances change, and they're able to get their animal back, then you get to set the price if you're the priest. That's what it's talking about. Then the priest gets to set the price for them to be able to purchase their own animal back that they dedicated um, in, in, in trying to be holy or, you know, pious, make a righteous offering. Um, then the priest, to, instead of just saying, oh, God bless you, you're doing better. Good. Here's your animal back. No, the priest gets to set a price on that animal for you to get it back. And then whatever price the priest sets on it, then you also have to add a fifth to that. Not a tithe of a tenth, but double the tithe to make it a fifth. Does that really sound like God to you? Or does it sound like, just like I said, um, turning my father's house into a marketplace? The one thing Jesus went off on in the New Testament, Jesus didn't go off on when he came across prostitutes. He didn't go off when he came across homosexuals. He didn't go off when he uh, came around anybody else except for the religious people turning, um, seeking God into a business. That's what God, that's what Jesus went off. That's what set him off. That's when he turned up, turned the temple out, overturning tables and setting the animals free. That's what set him off. So if you're a Christian, again, aren't we supposed to follow Christ's example, regardless of what else is in the Bible, especially when the other things in the Bible contradict what Christ says? That's my approach anyway. So let's keep moving. Verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy, to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. So it seems again uh, just an opportunity for more corruption. So if someone uh, says that, okay, well, I've got several houses, I'm going to go ahead and dedicate this house to the priesthood, I'm going to give it to the church. You can see, think in modern terms when the um, cathedral, a couple of years now, so during the pandemic, um, I can't remember the exact one because it's not my religion, but it caught fire and it was like instantly in one day, the world raised a billion dollars for that building to be repaired, even though that building is almost certainly insured. So you you see there's plenty of money um, and there's plenty of uh, ability. But the question is willingness, just like when people encounter Jesus. Uh, or at least one person encountered Jesus, the leper, and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus replied, I am willing, be cleansed. That lets us know the power and ability are there. Um, Jesus knows it and the person approaching Jesus knows it. But the question is, is the willingness there? Same thing goes with charity. The same thing goes with um, with um, with uh, being righteous, the ability to be righteous, the ability to be generous, the ability to be kind or compassionate is there, but is the willingness there? The willingness is what's often missing. So here you see that if someone does that with their house, even that they can value it, say it could be just a shack, but the priest could value it at a million dollars and let people know this person gave a million dollar house, even if it's a shack. So then if the person ends up in a better place or maybe not even in a better place, but able to just get their shack back again, because they came up and they're able to get it back. And even if they dedicated it and it was only worth $20, say, 
when they dedicated to dedicated it to the religion, when they want to go get it back, the religion could say, yeah, it's a shack. And yeah, it was only twenty dollars worth. It was only worth twenty dollars when you dedicated us. But now that you got money, we're going to say it's worth uh, ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. And uh, if you can't pay that, then you can't have your shack back. You can't have your house back. You can't have your property back because we just read who gets to set the price. The religion, the priests do. And it says that whatever they set it at, that's what's going to stand. Not what you think it's worth. Not what the appraiser thinks it's worth. What the priest thinks it's worth. Does that really sound like God to you? Codifying corruption. Verse 15. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one fifth of the money of your valuation to it and it shall be his. So again, you get to set the price on things offered to you, a free will offering, whether it's a house or property or an animal, then uh, the, the person offered it to you for, if the person wants to come back and get it from you, redeem it, in other words, as it's saying, um, they can redeem it, but they have to redeem it at the price you set for it, the price the priest sets for it. That's what it has to be redeemed for. And then not only that, you have to pay the price the priest sets it at and add one fifth to it. You have to not only add a tithe, but twice the tithe to it. Sounds a lot like organized corruption. And yet it's what's being codified here. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your evaluation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. So at least that's one standard valuation when it comes to property. If um, someone dedicates a field or part of their land, then the valuation will be set at the cost for the seed it takes to basically plant that land. Um, so I guess in that sense, at least there's one standard price. Um, verse 17, if he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your evaluation, it shall stand. So the year of Jubilee, we read about that recently in a couple of chapters back. That's when everything sort of gets reset, where um, whether it's a personal property that has been sold as a slave or as a possession, when that Jubilee rolls around, they get their freedom back. But not everyone gets their freedom back. If you happen to be uh, of the faith, uh, of the lineage, then you get your freedom back. If you're not, then you get to stay a slave for the rest of your life. You're condemned to be a slave passed down from generation to generation of the people who own you. Does that really sound like God to you? Verse 18, but if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be de deducted from your valuation. So the Jubilee is seven, um, um, a sequence of seven years of seven. So basically every 50 years, um, 49 years. So seven years of sevens, because it's instead of a, a week being a day, a week is counted as a year. I mean, each, let me say this again. So instead of the seven days counting as a week, and when it when it comes to counting the Jubilee, seven years is what's considered the week. So seven weeks of seven weeks is 49 years, seven years times seven years. So after those 49 years, on the 50th year, it's considered Jubilee where things get reset. And so if someone sells or buys something in during that time, the closer to that 50 year reset, the less you'll get for it because it's about to be reset and given back anyway. Whereas if it's at the beginning of that ju Jubilee, the price is higher because the people you're selling it to are going to have it for a longer time. And that includes people that are being bought and sold. It, it seems sick, but it, it seems corrupt, but it's what it says. So let's just keep reading. Verse 19, and if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. So again, the priest gets to set the value of the thing that was dedicated to them, presumably at, by free will. So if you dedicate your car, and it's a hoopty, old and raggedy, and the priest says, oh, well, we appreciate it, we'll take it, just like charities will now. They'll they'll take um old cars uh, because there's still people who can who need them and can use them even if just for parts so you can dedicate things like old cars and whatnot but the thing is 
they'll give say that they'll say oh that car is worth 50 bucks and they give you the 50 dollars for it or say it's worth 50 dollars if at some point you want to come and get it back it's not as easy as coming back with the 50 dollars which you really shouldn't need 50 dollars anyway especially with something like a car because it um it um diminishes in value um rather than gains value over time um but instead the priest gets to set a price at it for it instead so you might have dedicated your hoopty to your church your religious order and they said oh that's worth 50 bucks thank you and take it from you as that then at some time you come into your own and are able to get it back but can't afford a brand new car but you can afford to get that 50 dollars hoopty back and um you go to the church and say hey i want to get that car back because i'm able to buy it back from you the church may look at you and see that you're doing better and say oh yeah well you want it well now it's worth two hundred dollars and when you pay the two hundred dollars make sure you add a fifth with that so you have to add make it two hundred and forty dollars because it's a tithe times two it's a fifth that you're adding back to it it really seems like uh organized corruption to me but it's what's being laid out so we're just reading it as it says uh, verse 20 but if he does not want to redeem the field or if he has sold the field to another man it shall not be redeemed anymore so if it if the property passes as far as in this instance a field um, passes from to another person's hand then the redemption right is gone it's um, been sold it's it's gone you can't get it back but the field when it is released in the jubilee shall be holy to the lord as a devoted field it shall be the possession of the priest there you go so if you don't end up redeeming it before that time at the valuation the priest sets for it or um if it passes from hand to hand at the end of those the the seven weeks of sevens after the end of the seven years of sevens after the 49 years when the 50th year of the jubilee rolls around then guess who gets to get it the priest gets to get it it gets more enrichment of the religion that's who gets to set the valuations that's who gets to profit from the offerings verse 22 and if a man dedicates to the lord a field which he has bought which is not the field of his possession so when it says field that is bought and field of possession some fields of possession would be like the family uh, owns it say like um we haven't gotten to it yet in um the old testament but when the people come into what's called the promised land at some point they divide up the land by uh tribe uh say the tribe of dan the tribe of naphtali the tribe of judah tribe of judah tribe of Levi, and they divide it up like that so that once they get those areas those regions then each family gets their plots of that land so um that's sort of the field of possession but if you go and buy some other field that's what it's talking about now if you've taken what you have and go out and purchase some other property verse 23 then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your evaluation up to the year of jubilee and he shall give your evaluation on that day as a holy offering to the lord so again the priest gets to set the rule and the year of jubilee is involved when it comes to redeeming it and um whatever the priest sets the valuation at comes into play again um and it's all being called as dedications to the Lord. Verse 24, in the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to the one who owned the land as a possession. So it's saying there, if say, if it say like you have the land of your possession that your family sort of owns, then you go and purchase some, some land from somewhere else at the year of Jubilee. The land is no longer yours that you purchased, it's no, it's no, and it's not the person who you purchased it from either. Instead, that plot of land goes back to whatever family or, you know, whatever person owned that region um, um, uh, in the first place, that family possession. So say like if you're in the tribe of Levi, no, I can't say Levi because that's the priest line and they have their own property that doesn't pass but say like if you're in the tribe of Simeon and you own a property there as a possession because it's what your family has inherited then you go and purchase some property in the say the area of Reuben and then you own that at the year of Jubilee um, the land and say that land was owned by someone of say Manasseh 
that the plot that you purchased. So the year of Jubilee, the land that you bought from the person who um is in the tribe of Simeon, I'm sorry, in the tribe of Reuben, doesn't go back to that person. It goes back to the tribe of Simeon, the people who own the plot of land in the first place. I know it sounds a little complicated. Basically, basically it's the reset where everything goes back to originally owned it in the family of the Israelites, not in the family of the people who were there before them. Just like uh, in America, it's, things don't go back to the Native Americans uh, who were here before the colonizers and the people, enslaved people. Instead, it goes back to, um, uh, and in the case of the Holy Land, it doesn't go back to the uh, Canaanites or um, in modern times, the Palestinians who may have owned it. It would go back to the uh, Israelite lineage that owned that plot of land in the first place, no matter who it was, who, whose hands it passed to through purchase when that jubilee rolls around. Uh, verse 25, and all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. Um, I don't know how much a gera is. I mean, if you want to, you can always search it and find it out. But it's just talking about the property, the value of the property there and how to um, set the prices of the valuation for each of them. Verse 26, but the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. So we read about that one, um, that um, statute, that regulation, after the whole Passover narrative that we read in the book of Exodus, where uh, before they were delivered from enslavement in Africa, the um, firstborns of the firstborns were the last sign that they were about to be rescued from slavery. The firstborns, um, everyone in the area was going to die if they didn't put blood over their door um, posts to let the death angel, as it's called, pass when it passed over, to let that angel know, oh no, these people are um, um, sanctified or set apart from everyone else don't kill their firstborn whereas if you didn't put that blood on your lintel over your doorpost then the angel of death as it's as the narrative goes entered everyone's houses who didn't have that and did kill off their firstborn so then after the whole passover narrative when the people were rescued from slave from slavery that became one of the uh, regulations that the firstborn was dedicated to the lord whether it was animals or people and in the case of animals the animal had to be uh sacrificed and in the case of people although some animals could be redeemed like you could pay for the redemption of the animals and then the children the people were always redeemed it's not like you were to go and offer uh as a blood sacrifice your firstborn child you instead make payment for it to the religion um so that's why the where the firstborn thing comes in um, and so, and it was considered uh, to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord as that firstborn. It seems as a memorial of the fact that the firstborns died for the release of the people. These same people who have been who are being told how to purchase slaves and purchase human beings. It was um, from their rescue from slavery that that whole Passover uh, regulation came. Verse twenty-seven, and if a man. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one fifth to it, one fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. So again, with the unclean animals, say like a pig, if someone's dedicated that to the religion, the priests, then and they want to get it back, then they can get it back. But they have to pay for it and you have to add one fifth of the value to to it value to it so if it was a hog worth two hundred dollars then when you want to get it back you have to pay two hundred and forty dollars um you have to add that to it to redeem the animal that you dedicated um verse 28 nevertheless no devoted offering that a man may devote to the lord of all that he has both man and beast or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. So it's saying if you um, make the offering specifically as a devo as a devotion to uh, the Lord, say an offering, a spiritual offer offering, 
uh, whether it's a man, in, since you can buy and sell people according to these regulations, uh, or a beast, so an animal, or a field, then um, those can't be sold or uh, redeemed. Once you've given them, you've given them. Let's see. Verse 29, no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. So I'm not sure what it means by a person under the ban. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what it means by that. Um, when it says doomed to destruction, it sounds like maybe it's talking about people who've been, um, um, been, a um, judged and um, the punishment is the death penalty. Maybe that's what it's talking about. So someone who already has the death penalty laid out for them that um, that they can't um, be redeemed, that they still have to face that death penalty. I'm really not sure what that verse means exactly. Um, so uh, that one you're going to have to figure out uh, on your own. Uh, verse 30, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So the tithe is the tenth. Um, just like we've said before, out of the 60 plus books in the Bible, only a tithe or a tenth of them have anything at all of quotes from Jesus. I think that's a signal to Christians that that's what we should be focusing on. Because like I've said again in the end, there's many different religions throughout the Bible, not just one or two. And there's many different entities being uh, identified as or worshipped as the Lord throughout the Bible. So uh, you have to choose or walk in confusion. But the tie they're talking about here is... Um, uh, a tenth, so people can also dedicate um, their land or their um, produce or their animals as a tithe also to the Lord. And it's saying here um, that once it's the Lord's, it is the Lord's. And that doesn't mean it's actually being given to the Lord, it means it's being dedicated to the Lord, as in to the priests, to the religion, from the people. Uh, in order to please the Lord or in people's devotion to the Lord, just like when people make tithe or off tithes or offerings of money in modern times, when they give it to a church or religious religious organization, it's their way of giving it to the Lord, even though it's human hands that are going to um, take it. Verse 31, if a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one fifth to it. So, I thought it just said once they're the Lord's and they're holy, they, you can't redeem it. But apparently, if they do want to redeem um, uh, tithes, then you can add, you have to have one fifth to it. So say if you give a tithe of your paycheck, say you get $5,000 and your, say that's your paycheck, and then you give $500 to your, um, to your um, religious organization as a tithe, a tenth of it. If you want to redeem it, say like, I don't know why you'd want to go back to the church and say, give me my $500 back, maybe if you need it. Um, so if you do decide to do that, uh, you can do that, but you're going to have to add one fifth to it. So it kind of doesn't make sense. So to get your $500 back you're from the church, and I say church, meaning any religious organization that you've given the tithe to, to get the $500 back, you're going to need $600. So I guess that would encourage you not to take it, try and get it back from a religious organization since you're going to have to add money to it to get the uh, smaller amount back. Verse 32, and concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever pet or of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So now you got the firstborn to be considered holy to the Lord, meaning you have to give it up to the priest. That's the uh offering and now it's every tenth tenth animal also so if you have a herd of a hundred sheep goats uh cows pigs every tenth one also is to be dedicated given to the quote unquote lord and otherwise given to the religion verse 33 he shall not inquire whether it is good or bad nor shall he exchange it and if he exchanges it at all then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So 
um, I'm not sure then what would be the point then. If you want to get your animal back, you're going to have to give, you can't just swap it out for another one. And if you do, then the one you're trying to swap out and the one you're swapping both end up being considered holy to the Lord. So the priest gets them both. You get nothing, um, uh, at least of those animals. I, I don't get it, but it's what it's saying, how it goes, at least how I'm understanding it, how it's saying how it goes. Verse 33, he shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. I think we just read that. Sorry. So letting us know, um, both of them are going to end up being dedicated to the Lord. In other words, considered offerings that you can't get them back. And because uh, once you've given them, they've con they're considered holy. And if you try and swap them out, then the one you're trying to swap it out with also becomes the property of the religion. At least that's how it seems to read to me. So um, it also is considered holy at that point, and you can't get it back either. You can't redeem it either, meaning you can't come up with money to get it back or some other form of payment. Verse 34, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So again, that's the tagline that these are from the Lord. These are commandments given to Moses, supposedly, um, for the children of Israel. That's who's in the congregation. That's who were delivered from slavery in Africa. And um, that's who are given, who's being, who are, who's being given this laundry list of rules that Leviticus contains of how to worship, how to make offerings, how to give, how to enslave people, how to set people free, and all of that. And again, uh, Jesus, I went over it when we started this reading that all of these things are can't possibly be from God or the Lord Almighty. But it's what they say. It's what it says. So that's why we've read it that way. But that's also the last verse in this chapter. And that's the last chapter in this book of Leviticus. So believe it or not, we've made it now through the third book in the New Testament. When it seems like just yesterday, we even started reading it. Because up until recently, we were only reading the red letters um, for what, three, four years. And only recently started reading into the Old Testament. And here we are already to the end of the third book. So I appreciate you reading with me and hope as always it's been a blessing for you and is a blessing for you and hope you'll join me again. We go over the Old Testament on our Monday and Wednesday readings and on our Saturday readings that's where we focus on the red letter readings, the things Jesus actually had to say for us Christians, for the world, but for us Christians to embrace and use as our compass, our roadmap to onward and upward. Um, you can hear the past readings here on this platform on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, the different podcast platforms, or if you're an adult, you can hear them on my platform. It's free, hungtgirl.com, by clicking on the links on the left, the body, mind, spirit, and soul links, wherever they appear throughout the site, because I may end up redesigning that. Um, and focus on the spirit and soul pages if you want to see and read along with me the red letter gospels, the things Jesus actually had to say. Um, but you can enjoy the rest of the site also and see uh, what me and my friends and maybe some of your friends are up to. You can click on the pictures. They're actually free videos. Feel free to get a subscription or make a donation or just enjoy the free content or all of the above. I appreciate all of the above and thank you for all of the above and hope you'll join me again. Stay safe. God bless you. And thanks again. Peace be with you.